Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Eleanor and I spoke with Charles Moore, the journalist and biographer of Margaret Thatcher. Charles talked about what it was like to write Leaders for the Telegraph, aged just 24. He talked about how he deals with uh, the criticism following some of his most divisive columns. And he talked about uh, how combative Margaret Thatcher could be during their interview sometimes. It's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Charles Moore, welcome to Always Take Notes. I want to start uh, the interview uh, with 1979, which is when you joined the Telegraph as a political correspondent. Uh, and it, that, it was that year that Thatcher uh, became Prime Minister. So I want to know, what, do you remember the first piece that you wrote about her? I assume you were covering her quite extensively. Um, well, actually, I wasn't a political correspondent. I first joined on the diary column. Ah. Um, so I was pitched into all sorts of stories, including political ones of every description. But um, is this the Peterborough Gossip column? Yes. Ah, yes. yes. Um, which was a very, very... Res- gossip was not really the word for it. It was incredibly respectable. But it had a political element. I arrived in October, and she'd become Prime Minister in May. And um, actually, she was the reason I became a journalist, because I was at university, and I did the civil service exams, and I got through to the final. And then Mrs Thatcher became Prime Minister, and she froze recruitment, recruitment to the civil service. So I couldn't <laughs> go forward. So I was unemployed. Did you tell her this when you... No, I didn't think I ever did, actually. Um, but um, So I was unemployed for a bit, and then I got a job on the Telegraph. So I'm very grateful to her for that, because I wouldn't have been well cut out to be a civil servant. So did she make it into the Peterborough column? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I don't remember doing a particular story about that, but obviously she was already the dominant figure. Um, but at that time remember that a large number of people thought she was going to fail um, and that she wouldn't get through the next two three years uh, and that uh, feeling grew actually it wasn't so strong in 79 but it grew in 1980 and 81 so it, it seemed very um, and it was very tense for her uh, until Falkland's victory in 82. Could we talk about how your own career developed through the 1980s and also how when you started interacting professionally as a reporter with Thatcher how did those things run in parallel uh, having done the diary column I became uh, briefly a sub on the telegraph um, and then I became a leader writer and it was really only when I became a leader writer that I started to do predominantly political things um, and I started to write some articles under my own name uh, and then just before the 83 election, I was seduced away from the Telegraph by the Spectator. I was their political uh, columnist for the 83 election, and that meant that I followed Mrs. Thatcher around on the election trail, and that was the first time I had sort of daily contact with her. I did also go with Michael Foote, the Labour leader, but mainly with her, with her. But I didn't know her then, and I didn't even talk to her. I was just one of that sort of pack of people who are, are following her closely all the time, or um, particularly I think I remember going in the West Country um, and uh, f- her flying in a hovercraft and things like that <laughs> and holding fish in Padstow and so forth. And um, I actually met her for the first time at a dinner in 1985 in the House of Commons uh, of a little club which she came to address. And that was my first actual encounter. Uh, did you, do you remember what you spoke about? Did yes, you prepare something? what happened was she had just... Um, signed the Anglo-Irish Agreement Um, and uh, I criticised her at the dinner for 
from a sort of Thatcherite point of view, because I said um, you've won the um, war in the Falklands for people who wish to retain their British sovereignty. But in making the Anglo-Irish agreement, you've cut out the Unionists. You didn't consult them about the future of Northern Ireland, and you've dealt with the Irish Republic. So surely that's not a good Thatcherite thing to do. And she got very, very cross in her very characteristic way, um, which was to start using whatever argument came to hand and sort of beating you over the head. I mean, not literally. Um, and she said, um, but you don't realise the Protestants refused to collect rubbish from Catholic dustbins. Um, I don't know what she was particularly talking about um, or whether it was true or not, but that was rather characteristic of her that she would use the sort of example to try and squash you. Um, and so we started off with an argument, but I noticed even then that though she was very fierce in combat, she did actually sort of enjoy it. So you, she, wasn't, she didn't try to make you feel, you little worm, how dare you say anything. She was more wanting to engage with the, with the contest. And as someone who was on Fleet Street in the 1980s but has remained active in journalism up to the present, could you paint a picture, perhaps people who you know, weren't working or weren't even alive then, of what journalism was like in the 70s and 80s? And with, you know, it, it, be as sort of brutally frank, what was good about it then? What was, you know, compared to today, what was less um, good? What was good about it, um, particularly on the Telegraph, was a very, very strong sense of what is news, which was very carefully um, and efficiently collected. Uh, and it was a massive news team, both uh, foreign and domestic. Um, and that was all very professionally done and very accurate. Um, what was bad about it was that, in some ways, it was quite narrow, Again, particularly in the Telegraph, we had no columnists in the Telegraph in those days, none, um, except for the marvellous fantasy columnist, Peter Simple. But no people had, a, the, the then proprietor didn't believe in columns. He wanted pure news, which is rather refreshing in a way, but even at the time it seemed quite odd. Um, also, the labour relations were absolutely appalling with the print unions and completely unreformed. The print unions uh, were 100% male, 100% hereditary, um, controlled themselves um, so that the management could only keep going by bringing down literally suitcases with cash in them to bribe them when they were trying to go on strike in the night. Um, all Victorian hot metal printing, um, literally Victorian, um, a lot of it, uh, lots of indu pointless industrial disputes, strikes. Um, the unions eventually trying to control what was said in the paper, so they tried to get the leader altered if it didn't say something they liked. Um, and this went on, and then everything... Oh, and people were terribly drunk, fantastically drunk people all the time, um, in a way that's just extraordinary to remember, really, how very, very drunk. First, my first, uh, third week, a man was killed because he was, he was a message... What they call a message boy, though. He was actually about 60, and he was just very drunk and tipped over the stairs and fell to his death. Um, and... Um, uh, that was the sort of world people were in the pub a great deal and, and as I say all, virtually all male and then it all changed dramatically because of new technology and the Thatcher Union reforms so there was the famous standoff between Rupert Murdoch and the, un and the print unions at his news site in Wapping um, and he won that eventually after bitter literal, literally battles and then the modern world came in and all the papers, including the Telegraph, got new technology, moved house, so we no longer had the print at the back of the shop, as it were, it was in a different place. And we moved from, I think, having 
um, 400 printers to having about 25 overnight um, because we completely got rid of the old system and we everything changed and we were free to say what we wanted and we were able to print efficiently and all over the place and we started to make profits because incredibly the telegraph was not making a profit though it was by miles the market leader and this was because of all these restrictions and overmanning and union problems and um, so by the end of the 80s the telegraph was in very good shape um, I wasn't actually there until I came back to it in 90, having been away uh, a spectator from 83 until then. So I watched this from a close vantage point, but I wasn't actually in it um, uh, at that time. You uh, edited Boris Johnson when you were uh, at The Telegraph. Mm-hmm. What, what are your kind of uh, most striking memories of his copy? Well, always late, of course. That's the most single most notable no, that's unfair the single most notable thing about his copy was it was extremely entertaining and original but the second most notable thing was that it was always late and there was perhaps some relationship between the two things because what he wanted to do was to have a sort of adrenaline going in his own system when he was writing and also he didn't want to miss anything by being too early did he so want he, to have not enough time for it to be changed um he wasn't terribly pernickety about whether it be changed or not. He wasn't a sort of prima donna about it. But, I mean, you're right in a way, there wasn't any time to change it seriously by the time it arrived because it was supposed to come in at, let's say, 6, and it would never, ever arrive before 7.30. And sometimes it didn't arrive till 8.30, which really almost meant that you had to sort of delay printing of the paper and was just disgraceful. So it was a constant, constant problem. And um, at one time I did deliberately spike his copy, though it did arrive. I had something waiting to put in in its stead because I was determined to show him. And um, and so it did. He got very angry, but it was held out because it arrived too late. And he behaved well for about a month. And then... Um, <laughs> what was he like in the office as a sort of personality? Very, very charming. Um, I mean, pretty like now, really. Very charming. Um, fundamentally easy to get on with, but difficult to manage, if you see the difference. Um, full of original ideas. Um, very good other things as well as columns I mean he was very good reporter or sketch writer or interviewer he's very very good we used to do an interview I think for the Monday's paper and he'd sort of go off somewhere and find someone usually a famous person and he as far as I could tell it was sort of self-starting uh, he didn't need much direction and he's very enterprising I remember him suddenly popping up in Belgrade and interviewing Slobodan Milosevic when he was the um, you know the great boss man dictator murderous tyrant etc and Boris had somehow got into the room with him and this room um, that, um, in some ways, you, you share with him of, uh, at the Telegraph, then going to the Spectator, editing that at a relatively young age, coming back, had that, had that track been taken before you did it? Or Matthew Dancona also springs to mind? Yes, bit, no, I, I was the first Telegraph person, I think, to edit the Spectator, though uh, maybe Nigel Lawson had been on the Sunday Telegraph, but it wasn't a particular route. It became much more of a route later because it, in my time as editor of the Spectator, um, the Spectator was bought by the Telegraph, and ever since then there'd been a sort of umbilical link. What do you remember of uh, the website launching? I think it was the year after you joined the Telegraph. It was. Uh, the interesting thing is that I remember so little about it. Oh, really? Um, because you were the first newspaper in yes, it Europe. I, I mean, I do remember it, of course, and and um, we considered it important. But we also, 
our mentality was that we had to do this and we knew it would become more important but nevertheless it seemed secondary if you see what I mean you didn't we didn't really imagine the absolute transformation so we were actually pretty early in the game we did well in that respect but I don't remember saying uh, people saying the online world is going to dominate everything it was still seen as a sort of secondary question it's still seen like that i think by a lot of old school print journalists which is amazing you know it's almost two decades on now so i can imagine the sort of resentment towards it when it launched must have been quite yes well there was i mean we were all interested of course and some people positively excited and wanted to use the new medium but the typical newspaper journalist reaction was we're just going to have to do some more work we're going to have to do Hmm. all over again what we've done with a few more knobs on and how can we fit it all in which indeed is what's happened to some extent. It is a problem about doing both. Is you're you're writing too fast. Um, never never quite been resolved that that problem. But again, you so essentially what you thought was, it, what you particularly didn't think was, this is going to be a permanent r- thing running all the time, all day. What you thought it would be, you thought it would adapt the paper into online form at certain intervals on each day. You see what I mean? So the paper's primary and the and the uh, internet secondary, and it, it really it's the other way around now because everything flows obviously first through online, doesn't it? And as someone who has written extensively about politics in both book form and in, in the newspapers, and you know, at the Spectator, at the Telegraph, and has you forged a, a career as a polemicist, but also reading coverage of, of your book, it was praised for its even-handedness. How do you? see those things you know about writing about politics and having a political stance about opinion versus news those those strands there how have you worked that line well, in your career in personal terms i had a foot in both camps starting because i started as a reporter and when i first did columns they weren't really viewy columns they were analytical columns about what's going on in westminster and then of course also because i was editing so i was always um i wasn't for about half my life i wasn't a columnist i was an editor um, so, um, and indeed, I was the editor of, 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 of three publications. So I had to constantly decide about you know what is news, what's a story, what's the best story. And I was spending more time doing that than I was on opinion, though I was always interested in opinion. And I wrote quite a lot of leaders for the p- papers I edited. Um, so I did always have a foot in both camps. And I, I hope that this helps when in later life I've been only writing and mainly writing argumentative pieces. Because columnists are not so good if they're not rooted in um, news because they don't understand it's more difficult for them to interpret what's happening fast and also they tend to be less good at news people are well trained in uh, um, pinning down a fact and I've often noticed a curious thing that if you get academics to write newspaper journalism because they think they're sort of at play um, all their accuracy that they need for their scholarship disappears and they make wild asser- asser- assertions which are not backed by um, exact fact of the day. And I think the reporter background does help with that. Um, and I think it also makes you know the whole idea of a peg in journalism and when to write about what is very important. You can't just write an article which is sort of in the abstract. It has to be arising out of something that's coming up or going on. And as someone you know who's who's also run newspapers, what do you think of 
the way the Americans do it, where, say, at the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, the opinion department would be literally separated between the news operation, um, and there wouldn't yeah. be that news reporters would be discouraged from expressing political opinions, things like that. What, what's your view on, on that? Um, well, I'm, I feel a bit mixed about that. On the one hand, it's very important that reporters are not um, the covert mouthpiece of a political position, or indeed the overt mouthpiece of a political They should be reporters. But I think a paper ought to have a, a, an overall character. Um, and I don't think the opinion people should live in a bubble where they don't relate to the reporters. Um, so I always thought that the paper should be, which is the more the British model, edited as a whole. But one should try to respect the different roles of the different bits. Well, who are some of the comment writers that you particularly enjoy reading now or that um, you respect? Uh, well, um, if any, uh, I think um, Fraser Nelson is extremely good analyst of, as it were, pure politics. You know, he doesn't go range much wider, but um, uh, uh, I think he's very good at that. I think obviously Matthew Paris is very good in the Times. Um, uh, I think there are a lot of good ones. I don't, I don't find that I'm turning to one. Um, you know, who stands head and shoulders above yeah. the others. And I think it may have declined a bit in terms of entertainment. Uh, there, are, there are fewer sort of bravura performers than there were at some points, I think. Um, there's a lot of very decent, intelligent, well-informed columnists, but I don't think, I don't notice many, many dominant ones. Well, I suppose it's now there's a trend for kind of hot takes on things which can lead to less interesting copy, I suppose. Yes, I mean, even in the mere print days you did have to move fast but obviously now you have to move faster um can we talk about so, so some of your columns have been divisive um just by the nature of the fact that they're mm -hmm. political one that springs to mind or two perhaps of um one of in defense of prince andrew mm -hmm. which actually the headline as always is you know s slightly misleading because mm -hmm. actually the body copy is much more nuanced and then the other one was about Olivia Coleman and her left-wing face <laughs> for which you got a lot of stick how do, do how do people you're not on social media well, I think you do have a Twitter but you're not active on it I don't do it no yeah. because um, I think that I have my work cut out to say things clearly in the in the newspaper in columns and it's a great privilege to be able to do that and I, I feel that for me the downside would outweigh the advantage of tweeting as well it just means you pour out more stuff mm. uh, the quality will probably Very decline dirty, and you'll be much more punished for the stupid mistake than you will be assisted by the good one so how do you how do um people get in contact with you if they disagree with you or indeed agree with you oh they well they put comments on the end of the columns or they um a lot of them seem to get hold of my email somehow or uh, other what was the reaction like to the left-wing face oh well this would be an example of the different constituencies in this country because um, all, all my regular readers liked it very much and agreed and um, and uh, uh, was amused um, and um, I say all but you know what I mean um, many and um, and then of course others criticise it um, obviously it's very much a, a light-hearted thing and it's supposed to both please and annoy people so I, I think it did do both those things How would you summarise your own politics and also in say the, the you know the Thatcher period from 79 to to her death I suppose how did your own politics evolve during that time uh, I came from a liberal background with a capital L 
um, all my family were liberal, active liberals. Um, I became more or less Tory while I was at university. Um, but this was never very closely related to the Conservative Party. Um, I didn't feel loyal to the Conservative Party, but I felt overall Tory in a sort of cultural and political sense. Um, and that, I think, is still the case. Um, in the Thatcher era, I was sort of doing two things at once. One, I was basically trying to defend a broadly Thatcherite position, but also because my underlying approach was sympathetic, I was actually frequently very critical of her and her government, um, but from a sort of friendly rather than hostile position because of all sorts of things that all governments do which, um, uh, you know, depart from what they say they're going to do or are less good than they should be and so on. And I thought it was important, particularly at The Spectator, which is mainly what I, where I was then, to... Um, maintain an independent position with a government that we were basically sympathetic to um, and by a similar train of thought when Mrs Thatcher by this time I was back at the Telegraph I was deputy editor and I was all doing a column when Mrs Thatcher started to fall I was very uh, supportive of her um, because I could see that that was the minority position at this point because um, people were fed up with her and so I did a sort of rearguard action defense of her particularly on the European stuff um, and uh, even at the Telegraph that put me in a minority because um, Max Hastings the then editor was basically against her though Conrad Black the proprietor was for her um, and the sort of drift was anti and so I think I was probably the only columnist who was really working hard to you know try to save her position this is at the very end. Have you ever regretted defending someone or indeed a column or an opinion that you had publicly yes yes I have because sometimes um you seem to get it wrong sometimes um I mean you, you can be you can be fooled for example Jonathan Aitken um who went to prison for perjury I defended him when he was being attacked um uh, it's a complicated story about why he'd been in the in the Ritz in Paris but um I thought he was telling the truth um, and it turned out that he wasn't uh, and so I just got it plain wrong um, and Jonathan subsequently apologised to me in, uh, much later. On the whole I think when it's individuals and you're defending them I think unlike I think it's a horrible pack thing that happens now this is one of the reasons I defended Prince Andrew when everybody decides to assume the guilt and badness of a particular individual and there I think it's better to err on the side of naivety and defend them uh, rather than all pile in and show how righteous you are. And uh, in the case of Prince Andrew, I wasn't defending Prince Andrew as a good and wise man. I was simply saying that I didn't... He, he's innocent until proved guilty, and I don't uh, believe um, that he was lying about the key accusation, which is about the young woman. And, um, and I felt that people were absolutely determined to condemn him... Uh, because they don't like him much and because he's a prince and um, because she's a young woman. Um, and that um, I just I, felt the truth, the truth needs to be more carefully considered rather than the desire to accuse. And I'd been pursuing a similar thing, well, actually not that similar, but same principle, with Bishop Bell of Chichester, who was condemned by the Church of England 60 years after his death for an alleged paedophile offence, which I've it seems to me absolutely unproved and I believe to be quite untrue. Um, and again and again, I kept pointing out that um, the church had done this, had jumped to the conclusion without working out the facts. And eventually they admitted that. They they still 
went on saying that they weren't letting Bell completely off the hook, but they admitted all their processes were wrong. And I think we do have to keep looking out for this, that when people, they rush to judgment about, particularly if the crime is horrifying like paedophilia, you'd think people would be more concerned not to accuse people falsely because it's such a terrible thing to say about someone. But funnily enough, they're not. They're so horrified by the crime that they wish to find a guilty person, whether that person, and they don't really care whether he is guilty or not. I think that's sort of understandable, but it's also dreadful. And, you know, one of the things a columnist should do is stand out against the rush on one side of anything. There's still time to apply for the flagship writing a novel course at the Faber Academy Creative Writing School. This week, we're giving some more information on a couple of the school's most successful alumni. SJ Watson took the first course back in 2009. He says, you get so many messages that writing is a waste of time and you're never going to get published. And if you do get published, then there's no money in it. I just thought, if I'm going to have a proper stab at this, then I need to give it energy and time. On the course, he began his domestic noir psychological thriller, Before I Go to Sleep, which went on to become 2011's must-read debut, a global bestseller and a movie starring Nicole Kidman and Colin Firth. Chloe Esposito, a former English teacher turned management consultant, took the course back in 2015. The following year, she became the sensation of the London Book Fair when her trilogy, Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know, amassed international advance deals of more than two million. Universal is developing the films. Applications for this iteration of the Faber course close on the 31st of December 2019. For more information, go to faberacademy.co.uk. The course is available in two forms, an evening programme involving one evening class per week and one Saturday per month, alongside a daytime variant which is one morning per week plus an afternoon once per month. Always Take Notes listeners receive a £250 discount by using the code ALWAYSTAKENOTES2019. On the Royals piece, um, I was reading another... uh, online saying that during the the travails of um, Charles and Diana's marriage in the 1980s you I believe told Jeremy Paxman that this this should not be reported and I'm wondering you know how do, what is your feeling about that kind of thing do you think there are things that lie beyond the remit of journalistic inquiry um yes I do in the, um in that well they can be reported if um if the participants wish to report them um obviously but um, I, obviously, this can, some of this is to do with methods. You know, how do you, for example, if you listen in or if you bug someone, like phone hacking or something like that, it seems to me clear in, in all normal cases, at least, that you shouldn't do that. Um, might not be true of when you're pursuing a criminal or something. But um, similarly, um, what's in the, in the case of Charles and Diana, it seemed that what was going on was that the press were um, suborning people to say things um, and therefore trying to make trouble between them. What actually it actually emerged with, eventually was that Diana was um, had, had deliberately briefed this chap Andrew Morton, um, who wrote that book called Diana: Her True Story. And it, I, I, di- I, I didn't realize this immediately. It was called Her True Story deliberately, not because it's just a thing you always wish to say that it's true, but because it was the hint that she told him, um, or that that she told him through proxies actually. Um, and so I was gallantly defending Diana and Charles from intrusion when actually she had committed the intrusion on herself uh, if you see what I mean mm. um, and I, d- I, didn't, I wasn't immediately aware of that Just moving to that but kind of related to start to, to talk about the, the book um, could you talk about the idea of 
authorized biography. So yeah. what it is, um, both in your case, but sort of more generally, and what you think are the advantages, but also the potential complexities of that kind of writing. Uh, I don't know that the phrase authorized necessarily tells you one single thing, but what it meant in, in my case with Mrs. Thatcher was she had decided that um, it would be a good idea to let someone write her biography to, and that but when I say let, what I mean is that allow that person to see all her papers so that they would be accurately informed and to get on with the work before the papers were released to the public, which they couldn't be immediately because of the what was then the 30-year rule, now a 20-year rule about a government paper. Um, so the, in the sense in which she authorized me, was she said, would you like to do this? Um, and if you would, I will authorize you to see all my papers and I will ask the cabinet secretary to let you see all the government paper and I will authorize all the people who work for me to talk to you and my family and so on. Um, and I won't pay you. It's up to you to get a contract with a publisher. Um, and also I won't control you. I, Margaret Thatcher, will not be allowed to read what you write and it can't appear in my lifetime because otherwise people would have thought this is just her talking through a proxy like Diana and uh, <laughs> and um, and of course that would have been useless history so she was very wise to make that suggestion and it made it much easier for me to accept um, so that was the sense in which it was authorised she had no relationship to the text whatever uh, slightly more flippant question Galina Anderson is going to play Margaret Thatcher in The Crown in the yes. next season what, do, you, do you watch The Crown? Yes, I do. I'm, I'm a little bit behind on it, so I haven't seen the, 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 this, the, ne the, the third, part three. Yeah. What do you think of it? Um, well, I think it's very good, but perhaps con containing the seeds of decline in itself. I think um, it may be in the danger of getting too melodramatic and soapy and slightly drifting, losing its moorings from reality. Well, it's difficult because I was watching the um, Princess Margaret episode and I was like, God, you know, she said that thing about Kissinger and to Lyndon B. Johnson and kissed him on the lips and then it turns out it was all a <laughs> it was all fiction. Yes, I, I mean, I haven't studied all confused. this. I will be more expert about it yeah. when it gets to the Mrs. Thatcher stuff. And Gillian Anderson is playing yes, Mrs. Thatcher. Yes, I've talked to her about it. And oh, I've seen you? some of the... Um, rushes of it and I thought she was, did it brilliantly oh great um, she's brilliant uh, particularly with her Mrs. Thatcher in a in a, in a, in a state of high emotion um, I think what none of the actors I've ever seen Mrs. Thatcher get is that the way she was quite funny she was sort of almost camped up her style she's always played deadly serious because um, she was a very serious woman of course but there's an element of Mrs. Thatcher which is sort of a bit, ooh, you are awful, sort of, you know, um, almost tapping men with her handbag, sort of semi-flirtatious, um, almost parodying herself. She used to do that in private, and I, that I've never seen portrayed. But the basic Thatcher, the earnest, active, and anxious leader, um, working so hard, committing herself so much, arguing so much, being so worried about things, etc. All that is very well done. Did you watch The Iron Lady? Um, yes, I did, and I thought that's a bad film, but a very good portrayal. Uh, very good, so good that I thought they must have told. There must have been an inside job telling things sometimes about what, um, how Mrs. Thatcher behaved in private in her old age. There's a story online that there were three writers in in the hat, as it were, for the biography, and that mm -hmm. she picked you out. Is that true? And do you know who the others were? Um, 
I don't really know because I didn't apply for anything and there was no shortlist or in, any, in any formal sense. I've heard other names mentioned, but I actually don't know. Um, it, what is known, and I mentioned in the book, is that Alan Clark tried to do it. Um, he presented himself as her ghost for her memoirs, but tried to change it into him writing the book. Was this before his diaries were published? Yes. Or, yeah. yeah. Um, and she was originally amenable to the idea, but then when she realized that he was simply wanting to write a quick biography, she didn't want that because she wanted to write her memoirs, not the, the biography, which was later, another day's work several years later. Um, I, so I don't really know what happened about the biography. All I know is that I was approached. I didn't apply. And could we talk about process? We always, on the podcast, try to get into the nuts and bolts yes. of how the thing was done. So this took decades, right? I mean, it took... Yeah, two, two decades, yeah. It took a long time. Yeah. How... Um, were you working on it full time? What was no. your, what was the mix between interviews and archival material? Did yeah. you have research assistants? Really take us into the yeah. nuts and bolts of how it was done. Never working full time because, uh, and in the first years, very very short amount of time because I st- only stopped editing the Telegraph in two thousand and three, having got the uh, contract signed the contract in ninety eight. So in the first years, I did things like interview her, but I didn't do the basic research. From two thousand and four. Uh, 2003 my job changed I left the editorship in order to get on with the book and I continued on the staff just as a writer and that's relatively easy to organize the amount of time you need to write the journalism and the book and so since 2003-04 I've been working um, continuously hard on the uh, the book and it was three volumes then I decided it ought to be two volumes then when I got on to volume two I realized it couldn't possibly be two it couldn't be contained in two so it went back to three um and I didn't do them, pile them all up. I did one at a time. Important to have one ready for her death, which was, as I say, the de- literally the deadline. Um, and I, I didn't have a very clear or good method. I simply followed the advice on this point of Simon Heffer, who, experienced writer, who says there does come it's sort of a rather gnomic remark, but he said, there does come a point when you have to start writing. <laughs> and um, meaning, don't just pile up, pile up, pile up research. Eventually start writing. And this is good advice, partly because you'd simply forget. But also, I think it's only when you're writing that you realise what more research it is you need to do. Because you have to answer certain questions when you're writing. And you only realise you have to write them when you are writing. They confront you. You suddenly realise, I don't know about this, or I haven't asked Nigel Lawson about this or whatever or I need this document and so you it, it, the writing helps direct your research though obviously you need to do a lot of research before you do write and um, the relationship between oral history and the written papers is that um, the written papers are overwhelmingly more important in explaining particularly in government what actually happened and how she did govern and they're very telling because she writes so much all over the papers. So you can see what she's doing all the time. But, of course, the papers don't tell you about much about who thought what about whom and all that sort of thing. And they don't really tell you the surrounding stuff about how many other things were going on at the same time. So that, you know, maybe on the day that you're doing the budget, there's also an IRA bomb and a by-election and a state visit by the... Emir of Qatar or something and it could be and the Prime Minister has to deal with all those things also um, oral history is phenomenally inaccurate I mean all memory is I- inaccurate and politicians particularly so um, because they're always so busy at the time that they can only remember what they were doing they can't really 
take an overview. But it's very valuable because it shows what they felt and what they minded about and what they didn't notice. And so you compare one witness against another almost like in a court case. So you need, and they ha it's atmospheric as well. So you need um, this great collection of voices, about 600 people interviewed for the books. Um, as well as the absolutely enormous collection of papers. And the other thing just to say about papers is that, of course, a lot of them turn up later because as well as the government papers and her papers, people suddenly find they've got private papers or they tell you that they didn't tell you before that they kept a diary, often very valuable. Um, or in the case of Mrs. Thatcher herself, all these letters she wrote to her sister when she was very young, an absolute treasure trove of the private life that nobody knew about uh, in the first volume, obviously. And so... All these bits compose the whole, and I think to get the tone right, you do need all those uh, different strands. When she died, uh, how did it affect you on a personal level? Were you affected? Um, well, I suppose when she actually died, I was much too busy to think about being affected. I just, I rather spookily, I was on the train, and I corrected. I was correcting the last page of the last proof of volume one and of course I didn't I mean I knew she wasn't well but I got off the train and was told she was dead so I had literally just finished the book as I got off the train um, and they had they decided they were going to publish it really really fast so they got it out within two weeks which is quite phenomenal for her um, and of course I was asked by the Telegraph and by lots of media to keep talking and writing and so on uh, about for journalistic purposes so it was absolutely flat out so I didn't really give much personal thought to her until the funeral or possibly until coming up to the funeral because I was very incensed by the attempt to insult her body as it were um, by the people who were um, claiming to burn an effigy or you know want, said they would interrupt the funeral procession and that made me feel tremendous sort of protectiveness and pity um, and anger and then when I was at the funeral I thought how magnificent it was and how well done and I always find public ceremonies in a way more moving than just private things I like the combination of the, the private knowledge of someone and the public ceremony I find that very moving and um, this the whole life comes into focus and the, the the way she'd come such a long way is very um, touching, I think, you know, from nowhere to, to this and the Queen beside her coffin. Um, and, and the sense of how much it cost her and the pain and difficulty and also the scale of achievement and um, the scale of controversy and all those things. So then um, uh, that's a powerful mixture of feelings. And also... Um, Though I wouldn't claim to know her intimately as human being to human being, I did know her uh, quite well. And um, I was very grateful to her in her personal dealings with me because she just was, she wasn't the ideal interview subject because she was always trying to evade questions about herself and so on. But, um, but she was very kind and very sort of human. I mean, she could be quite alarming, Mrs. Thatcher, but she wasn't, snooty she didn't sort of try to put people down because she was more important than them she's a very direct person and she was quite cozy i mean she was you know 
quite motherly said it was always quite a lot of you know you you look cold you must get warmer or you know couldn't you like another bun or where would you have the interviews um in mainly mainly in her offices which were nice offices in um chesham place um and then when she became more frail mentally and indeed physically but the relevant point is mentally i realized it was unfair to subject her to formal interviews anymore. So I used to take her out to lunch at um, the Savoy or the Goring Hotel or something like that. And or sometimes go around to her house and we just chat. Um, Did you record interviews? I recorded interviews, but I didn't record the chats. Right. And I, 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 sorry, I kept notes of the chats, but I didn't um, have a tape. That would have intimidated her. I felt at that stage it would have intimidated her. And with this a project of, of this scale, years in the making, multi-volumes, were you conscious of Robert Caro's work on Lyndon Johnson? Uh, yes, um, though I'm ashamed to say I've never read it properly. Um, uh, he's, he's doing, I think, something a bit different. First of all, it's even longer. <laughs> um, secondly... Yeah, you, um, you finished, which is... Yes, as a second year I finished. But thirdly... I think he's more trying to use it as a way of writing about the whole of America at that time. And while, of course, I do wish to get the atmosphere right in the Thatcher book, in order to organize the material, I, I'm not writing a history of her government. I am writing a biography of her throughout her life. So I do try to keep the focus on um, her. Um, I hope I get the wider atmosphere, but the, you must keep the focus on here. Uh, and I had an interesting correspondence with Hilary Mantel about this because she, she said, um, we're doing, you and I are doing something slightly similar, though mine's fiction, because we've always got the same person in the room. Um, it, I think it's literally true in her case, and it's not absolutely literally true in mine because there are occasions when she's not in the room, like when Howe is, Jeffrey Howe's uh, plotting with Lawson or something like that. But, um, but basically, it's true. And so this very very closely focused a lifelong encounter with your subject after she died was there anything that you realized you hadn't asked her and you'd meant to well lots lots but you have to remember that it might not be so important in a way because mrs thatcher was very evasive in um in interview answers because she didn't like talking about she was obviously an egotist like all great people she didn't really like talking about herself so she'd always try to jump the rails and start talking about general things like you know the recovery of Britain or um, why communism's bad or um, how to control inflation what was the question she evaded uh, she she didn't like anything personal so she didn't like anything about her family her marriage her children um uh, what she thought of other individuals um, or her inner life. Um, she actually did sometimes say things about this, but you couldn't, if the harder you press, the less you got. So it would more, it would more come out in sideways conversations. Um, and she was so practiced at political interviews on television that she treated my interviews like that, though of course they weren't. But she would behave as if I were, as if she were on telly. Um, and sort of start wanting to have a fight, really. Um, uh, and, you know, just and hitting back all the Did time. Did you ever have a proper fight? Well, she would, she'd get very heated sometimes. And it was always, always to do with my trying to find out too much. I don't mean that she was trying to, f- to hide a guilty secret. She wasn't that sort of person. She just didn't... Self-analysis or the analysis of people close to her was something she didn't enjoy. So she would, she would just deliberately be unfair in order to 
derail me. So she might say something like, you only say that because you're a socialist or something like that. Um, and, um, you know, just to get me out, just push, push me away from whatever track I was going down. It's a, it's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it relates to people's yes. writing lives. And there's a, there a few bits of this that I wanted to talk about. So the first was, is your career as a, as a journalist and an editor in the 80s and the 90s, how did uh, both what you were being paid and what you were later able to pay people compare to how the scenario is now? And then secondly, when you were writing the book, this project that took so long, mm. um, how did you sustain yourself, your income? What, what fraction of it was from the book? What fraction from other work? Things um, like that. I haven't calculated the fraction, but what I would generally say about the advance is it's a big advance, but also the worst paid thing per hour work that I've ever done mm. um, because of the absolutely colossal amount of work. And also... Um, I paid um, researchers. I started off with only one researcher because I felt I must look at all the British papers myself and see what they were like and go right through them. But I quickly realized I had to employ someone in the United States because there's a massive amount there and I couldn't simply couldn't do both. I just could not fit all that in. And I employed this marvelous man, Daniel Collings, who did about sort of 98% of the primary research in America. Um, uh, and most of the interviews he was he's just brilliant um and we worked harmoniously together all the way through and um he didn't write any of the book he didn't even 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 in a preliminary sense i wrote 100 percent of it but um he his work on the american stuff was fantastic um that's quite expensive to employ somebody all those years to do that and then in later years um i employed in a less general capacity a less commanding capacity uh, other researchers um, including mainly one called David Shields who's an excellent mainly expert on Northern Ireland but also resident in Cambridge and could look at things there in the Churchill archive um, where a lot of Thatcher papers are uh, well, well where her papers are um, and so I was not making a loss on the book but not making much of a profit um, and so I sustained myself by continuing as a journalist all this time. And if I'd only worked um, on the book, um, despite its success and decent advance, I would be um, struggling to uh, survive financially. Now, to finish off, because I know you've got to dash away in a few minutes, looking back at your editorship of The Telegraph, what would you say was your greatest success? What I was trying to do all the time was to, I feel the editor should care very much about the overall character of the paper. And I think one of the difficult things about the, the online age is how hard that is to do because you've got such a sort of massive spread of identity through because of the spread of media. Um, I felt it, I could give it an identity and I was very admiring of the traditional telegraph. That's to say a sort of very news-based, serious newspaper but I felt that it could be livened up so and, and modernized in that way um, and made more controversial because though it was very conservative uh, um, in its party allegiance tradition it, it was rather averse to controversy and to fun it was very plain fair and I thought you could maintain most of the authority while getting more originality controversy and humor into it 
And I think on the whole that did succeed, and this also succeeded in layout terms and that sort of thing. If you think of innovations in the great days of the Saturday paper when it was so strong, and we were able to develop new supplements all the time and present things much better than in the past and use modern technology to have much better photographs. It was unbelievably bad use of photographs in the old days, that sort of thing. So I would say, um, uh, in my mind, I suppose, it's a fundamentally a Victorian concept, and I mean that in a good way, but uh, adapted to the 21st century, that, uh, so that it was both old and new, sort of an interesting project in that way. Well, Charles, thank you very much for coming on to Always Take Notes, and your final volume in your Thatcher biography is out now. Thank you very much. Lovely to speak to you. Hello, it's us again. Um, We have some news on the podcast, uh, which is that Ellie, who has been the co-host of Always Take Notes for a year... In case you hadn't noticed. uh, (laughs) ...is stepping back. Um, Ellie, it's very sad to see you go. Yes, it's been very fun. It's been a delight. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Um, And I will be listening every two weeks as a devoted fan. Of course. And can you say a bit about the uh, your new project that you're going yes. to do? Yes. So I am. Um, I have just launched a music podcast called Straight Up, which interviews, which kind of lifts the lid on the music industry by talking to everyone from like the hottest public- publicist in the UK to the most, uh, let's say, ubiquitous photographer to kind of the biggest manager in the scene right now, and talking about the stars biggest musicians in the charts according to them so the and inside where, lane where can people find that they'd like uh, to listen to it wherever you get your podcasts oh, and there cold. are some pretty incendiary anecdotes this week it's about co- Prince William yeah but this is because you drink while you're talking to your guests <laughs> yeah every interview is conducted over several drinks so by the end of it they're totally loose-lipped and we often have uh, little emails after us being like could we just edit that out uh, which we don't and it's called Straight Up and it's called Straight Up and it's available now and it's available now, and it's on our third week. Uh, so, yeah, so quite different to always take notes, but journalistic and quality and integrity are still the same. Always. Well, look, Ellie, it's been a great pleasure having Thank you on you the show Simon. and wishing you all the best with everything going forward. And there is a new co-host who shall be introduced uh, in the next episode. Big surprise. We need to say still do the normal stuff, right? Oh, yeah, we do need to say that was a great interview with Charles. Yes, very interesting. Um, who is actually my colleague. Uh, yes, that's true. I was going <laughs> to say that we needed to say this has been Always Take Notes, hosted oh, by me, Simon Acom, and for the last time. And for the last time, Eleanor Hall. Charles Moore was my swan song. He was your swan song. Um, our producer is Nicola Keane. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. And our graphic design is by James Edgar. And if uh, you've enjoyed the show, you can find us on social media. We are on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Facebook and Instagram. I haven't left yet, and you've already nicked my bit. You we shared both this bits. Bit. No, you just did both, as okay. if as no, if I'd I was already gonna, gone. I was gonna, okay, you can have Instagram. Where are we on Instagram? <laughs> Take notes always, but you didn't even know that. No, that's Twitter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a graceful departure. <laughs> um, and Sorry. if you've enjoyed the show, we are on Patreon. At, no, we haven't said that. You have just said that. No, no, no. Oh no, sorry. You s- yeah, you said rate and review and subscribe. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, we're on Patreon uh, at Always Take Notes. Uh, anyway, Elliot, it's been a great pleasure and wishing you all the best with your <laughs> next ventures. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, listeners.